Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with Matt and John, and today we're going to discuss the reality of death, the law of sin and death, and Christ's defeat of death. I may not be my usual bright shining self. Hey, wait a second. This is this is your day, man. This we're talking about death. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite, favorite topic. topic. You shine, man. When we're yeah. talking about sin and death, that's when you're your absolute best. I wasn't expecting a lot of Okay. Out of Maybe I better sit up in my chair. I'm leaning way back here. I'm gonna sit up. I, I your you know, your book was number ten on my all time favorites. The Psychotheology okay. of Sin and Salvation. The whole book is about what we're talking about today. So today, you know, get up out of your chair, get some coffee, you know, or get in a left okay, you know. Try, I'm trying to come uh, So here. that's what we're asking Paul to do now is he right. throw yourself into the thorn bush and wake up. Okay. Like I was telling John the other day, he was like, Oh, I had no idea. He was, I was like, you know, I've actually died. Yeah. Yeah. Know? I was good. <laughs> At least once, you know, it's just be interesting to know, like Paul, like, I don't know if you've ever died or had a near death experience or, and I know that we're going to, the focus of our talk is going to be about sort of a lived orientation and, <laughs> and that stuff, but we are going to talk about the other stuff too. Right. Paul, I don't know. Do you, have you ever had a near death experience or had anything weird like that? I've had two occasions, not uh, probably on the order of yours, but when I was uh, 15 years old, I was in a a car accident, and the roof of the car, I I was driving in Kansas on a New Mexico license, but anyway, that, and the roof of the car came down and split my head open. Oh. I have very little memory of it, but I came to or at least I came to awareness. And there was a group of people in white that were gathered around me. I did. I had no idea who they were or where I was or why they were all looking <laughs> down at me. It was just a brief moment. And I, you know, I, then I looked down, I was strapped to this table. And so I unstrapped myself. I thought, well... I, I quickly got the idea this probably isn't the afterlife because they wouldn't strap me to a table in the well, one would hope. But I decided I'd leave whatever it was. And so I got up to leave. I just got up off the table and started walking away. I mean, so did you just walk out of the room or were they operating on you? What was happening? <laughs> I don't know what no, they were okay. doing. Wow. And then I walked out and I realized my father started yelling at me. He said, get back in there. And then I realized, oh, I'm, I'm in a hospital. <laughs> what did you walk out of? They had me strapped to this bed. I couldn't figure out what was happening. You know, they were probably a little confused because later I had to go to court because actually it turned out I was driving illegally in kansas you were too young unless my father were a farmer and so my father became a farmer all this to say so we went to court so i actually i actually got to hear everyone's perspective on it and apparently the lady who ran into me who i have no memory of i talked to her all the way and so for people who 
were there, I was completely conscious and in conversation. But in my own experience, I only came to consciousness in that moment. Suddenly, you know, so I don't know if I was conversing, but apparently I was, and I had no awareness that I was. That was kind of bizarre. And I woke up, and it was that next morning was my 16th birthday. Well, there you go. The other one was when I was in uh, in Japan. It wasn't exactly a near-death experience, but I was out building the kids a kind of a playhouse, and I was, as being cheap as I am, I was just taking old rusty nails and unbending them and driving them in. And it was late at night. I don't know why I was out driving rusty nails late at night. But anyway, I drove one into my hand. No. And I didn't think much about it. But then the next day I was in a class teaching and I looked down at my arm and my whole, the veins, you could see the veins in my arm. You know, that all, I had blood poisoning clearly. And so I went to the doctor and the blood poisoning they quickly took care of. But the doctor took a sample of my blood you know how they tend to do they begin to look real serious at one another but i so i had to come back and they, i came back and they said well you'll have to quit your work um and you can't travel on a train ever again Gosh. <laughs> i remember faith telling me this story <laughs> i we went home you know they said well you have strange blood you have these large blood platelets and there's, you know, we, we were pretty sure we know what it is. And I went home, looked it up, and I can't remember what. But it, there were two basic diseases. You know, my time was up. That was they, That's what they were telling me. And, oh. And so I began the process of dying. I thought, well, this is it. You wrote a blog on this. And so, I, you know, I just put my pajamas on and left and kind of shuffle, began to shuffle around the house. And, you know, you kind of grow weak. and you, you can feel death coming down on you. You know, it's there's been some good parts in life. I've enjoyed life, but boy, sure seems like I'm going early. It was a good but short run. Good run. So I, I that was my second experience. Of course, I went back to the hospital uh, maybe a week later, and they said, "Whoops, we made a mistake." You're hellish weak. Sorry about and that. So I w I wasn't dying. I wasn't dying. In fact, there was nothing wrong with me. Yeah. So those are my. What I know, Matt, you must have near death experience. Yeah. No, I definitely do. <laughs> you just must. <laughs> After the the degradation <laughs> of, of you know of the life that I uh, live, but yeah. Um. Actually, I counted. I was thinking about this the other day with with uh, John, and I counted like ten times where I probably should have died. And one time where I literally did flatline, but once, you know, I was a kid and I was, um, I was going fishing with a buddy of mine and uh, his name was Malachi. Wow. Cool name. You know, uh, we were out in the middle of nowhere. Well, I think we were done. We came back from fishing and there was this sort of, um, Creek, real muddy Creek that you had to sort of jump over to get to this pond that was out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, he had, for some reason, gotten out ahead of me a little bit, and he, you know, he jumped over, and he, I think he was like, well, I'm going to head out of here, and I was sort of messing around and got, like, a little bit behind, but uh, when I went to jump over the creek, I, I, I must have slid. I was, like, barely sort of missed, and whenever I went into the water, and it was, like, that really, you know, brown, murky, muddy water, and when I slid into the water, all the mud started going into my boots. Uh, yeah. 
And so now, and I was like, I was submerged, you know, and I was like underwater, you know? Um, and the only thing that I was, could stick up out of the water was my hand. I think I, I can't remember if I, it was the hand with the fishing pole, but it was like, that's all I could do, man. I was stuck, you know? And somehow Malachi must've turned around and been like, wait, where's Matt or whatever. And I don't know if he saw it or what, but he came back and he, he actually saved my life. He pulled me, he grabbed me and pulled me up out of there and he did it just in time. That's uh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could, I could keep uh, going, you know, with crazy. Right, you know, right. It's like one time I was almost murdered in a uh, in a drug deal gone right, bad. Right. I don't know if you want to include that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that. the one. I want. Uh, yeah, that's the that's the, that's, the, that's the good one. You know, you can name the podcast that. I came and it was late at night, and I was uh, I was you know I was selling <laughs> drugs, and at the time it was um uh, I think it was well yeah you literally can't include some of the stuff because I don't know if there's a statute of limitations on this, but I was like you know selling crack cocaine you know and uh it was like late at night and the guy came to the you know he called me and he said hey man you know i got a, you know it was like a grand or something it was a lot you know it was enough to get let him come because usually i would shut down you know for the night but it was late and he was like come on man i'm really you know i got like a thousand bucks or whatever and i said all right man i was like i'll you know just stop by and we'll just go in and out and whatever and uh, i opened up the door you know and he was holding like one of those red solo cups, you know, that people usually drink, you know, at parties and stuff. Um, and he's like holding this red solo cup and now I was like, all right, man, come on in. And I'm walking, I start smelling this weird smell. And I'm like, I'm smelling like gasoline or something. And I turned around, I was like, man, I was like, what's that smell? And he was like, why don't you take a, why don't you take a seat on the bed? And I was like, nah, dude, I was like, I'm just, I'm not trying to chill. I'm not trying to hang out, man. I'm just going to hook you up and you can go. And he was like, I'm not asking. He was like, take a seat. And I was like, uh-oh, you know, something's, something's wrong. You know, he pulls out this lighter and he goes, you know, this cup's filled with kerosene, man. And he was like, I'm going to burn this whole hotel down, starting with you. He was like, where's the dope? And he had that look in his eye like he wasn't playing around. So I was like, okay, I don't think I want to be burned alive tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and, you know, and I thought that there was a pistol. <laughs> I was selling drugs actually for this other guy and he'd always would leave like the pistol like in the in the dresser this sounds like made up when i'm talking about it like i feel like i'm talking about a different person it's crazy but it, it's true it's like uh so i'm like well you know all right i'll get your dope you know it's in the dresser and i'm thinking that there's a you know there's a revolver in there and i was like i'm just going cap i'm just going blast this dude I mean, he's walking up into this apartment you know trying to kill me and i got you know i'm with my rights i'm i'll flush the dope and whatever but I uh, and I'd made that decision. I was like, I'm, I'm gonna, I have to. I got to do it. You know, that's always the logic, right? But I um, I opened up the, the dresser and my heart just sunk. The gun wasn't there. My partner had taken it with him. But luckily, I had separated. Like this is, you know, it's funny. Luckily, I had separated crack cocaine into more than one bag, so that the big bag was sort of deeper into the drawer or something you know but i did i had a big bag of it though and i threw it to the guy and i was like man this is all this is all we got you know it might have been like two grand worth maybe 2500 bucks worth or whatever he he ended up he ended up leaving but that was a close call that was a real close call because he actually stopped he was getting after he already had the i already gave him the stuff and he was like walking out and then he stopped and he turned around and he was looking at me like he was still thinking about doing it Dude, I was like, you got your, I was like, man, I think he was probably scared because he knew, you know, what might happen or whatever. And I was like, I just looked at him and was like, man, you got, you know what I'm saying? You got what you came mm -hmm. for, just go or whatever, you know? And he, he left. So that was another time. I mean, I've literally injected high quality uh, heroin and cocaine in the same syringe 
hundreds and hundreds of times. We're talking about death, you know, so that's certainly like a brush with anytime you're injecting, you know, powerful mm-hmm. poisons like directly into your heart. Was there a lesson that you learned? Oh, that's a great question. You know, the time I almost got murdered, that really kind of that helped me to rethink because that'll bring me to the last time, you know, so, so I, um, I did, I overdosed one time. I, um, this is before fentanyl came a thing. Now fentanyl's in the news like crazy, but this is clear back in like 2004, 2005 or something like that. And fentanyl really wasn't a thing, but I would went to Pittsburgh and gotten some dope up there. And I didn't know that it had fentanyl in it. <laughs> this is, it's just crazy when I, cause I never think about this stuff. So when I start talking about it, I'm like, gosh, what in the world, you know, but uh, the one time, you know, this is the fentanyl story. I went back to my dad's house and I sort of, you know, booted up in his bathroom. And as soon as I, as soon as I, you know, pushed the plunger down, you know, it takes about five to seven seconds. But as soon as it hit, I knew that it was like way too strong kind of thing. Um, and I was like, uh oh, you know, I'm in trouble. I could just, I just knew it. You know, I was like, uh, and I, and it, the weird thing was, is that the bathroom mirror and there's the sink and it was like, as soon as it hit, <clears throat> I just sort of like, pulled it out of my arm, threw the syringe on the ground. I just kind of like grabbed the sink and my breath kind of like I lost my breath, you know, and uh, I knew it. I knew I was like, I'm, I'm going down, you know, and I, uh, I turned the cold water on and I remember I just said, a, you know, my dad's a Christian, you know, he's a, and all I could think was, is, uh, and it was strange. I wasn't like a Christian or anything at the time, but I do remember in my head praying a quick prayer, which was like, God help me and please don't let my dad find me. Like you know he's your i might not be your servant but he is you know and it's like so please don't for his sake you know don't let him find me but it was very strange watching myself in the mirror i was i was not you know it was it was it was over i thought and it was weird it was like i i turned the water the cold water on and i was literally like sort of throwing the splashing the water in my face and kind of like slapping my face like you know trying to keep myself from going out and it was the strangest thing it was like when i prayed i was like you know god help or whatever it, it just passed. It was the strangest thing. It was like, it, it just, um, it just went away. I, I can't explain it. Um, I don't even think I was, I don't know if I just had so much adrenaline or whatever, but yeah, you know, it's not like I just like made it through like the, the terror, but I feel like I, like I wasn't even high after that kind of thing, which is like, seems like physiologically impossible or whatever, you know what I mean? But, and then the last one I'll tell is that this was the, and this, it's weird, you know, when you're buying drugs off the streets, you never really know what you're getting, right? Like, even if it's a dealer that you've been working with for a while, because the way that they cut it up and the way they bag it up, it's like, mm. you know, one of the bags could be just like way stronger than one of the other bags, just because the way it, just the chips sort of fell, right? It's like the, one of the, you know, parts of the bag might just be like way more pure and the other ones might have more, you know, what they call cut or, or, or whatever, right? So uh, the reason why I'm saying that is, is because I was doing the same the same heroin like the night before, and I was fine. Well, I mean, I wasn't fine. I mean, I was you know high on heroin, but I mean, I wasn't you know dying. You know? In the morning, I, I woke up and uh, I did the same amount. I did the same amount. When I was in the bathroom and I was like on the toilet, you know, I was like getting high, like on the sort of like as I was sitting on the toilet and I must have fell forward, right? Like whenever I injected it, I fell forward and I, I hit my nose like on the wall. I was like aspirating my blood into my lungs. You know, the girl that I was sort of hanging out with, she was worried. I was in the bathroom for her. She's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Or whatever. She And I wasn't answering, right? It's so like her neighbor had to come over and like broke the door down kind of thing. And they like called the EMTs. When they got there, I don't know the exact chronology of like how it happened, but I was at least near death. But at some point I flatlined, you know, altogether. 
So I don't know if it was on the way to the hospital. They used this stuff. I think it's called Narcon, Narcan. And I, they hit me like multiple, like, you know, three times or whatever. It just like wasn't working. It's weird too. I, I do remember, you know, people talk about your life flashing before your eyes. That happened. That happened to me. Uh, um, I can't remember all of it, but I do remember the first, and it was like, it was a very strange thing. It was like my, it was like my brain was like offload, you know, like offloading, you know what I mean? Instead of like uploading data, it was like, you know, dumping it all. And it was like in the form of memories and they were super fast flashes of memory, but I was able to kind of comprehend. It was like, you know, bang, 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 bang with memories. But it was like, I could comprehend the memories. And the first one was of my dad. I was a little boy and I was laying in bed and my dad was reading me a book. I'll never forget. You know, that was like the first uh, memory. And I really can't remember a lot of the other ones. I guess at some point when I woke up, it was like the story that you were telling earlier, Paul. It's like I woke up and um, I think, I don't, again, I'm not sure because like you said, you know, you're out of it or whatever. But I, I, I guess the doctor said, I don't know if they had given up or, or what. All I know is that when I opened up my eyes, there was a woman standing, just standing there. Her hands were like over her face. And I was like really kind of disoriented. I was thinking like, what, you know, where am I? And I was thinking, is that my mom? Is that like an angel? I didn't know. You know, you're like, you're out of it. But I do remember thinking that. I realized that I, I'm pretty sure that the, it was like a nurse who was like crying, I guess, because she thought I was gone. But then she saw me like she saw my eyes open, I guess, because I saw the look on her face was like of just like utter surprise of like, what is going on kind of thing. And she like tapped the, do you know, the shoulder on the, the doctor on the shoulder and he like turned around and he kind of gave the same kind of look. And then I went back out and I remember this is a strange thing. And I've always wondered, it's like, I don't know if I, if I was just experiencing the effects of like the drugs, you know, whatever it was that, that they were using to try to wake me up. But I do remember feeling like a profound sense of peace. I would just be lying if I if I didn't say that. I'm not saying, you know, I definitely wasn't like living for the Lord or anything like that. Now, I I do think that prior to that, I really had like, you know, it's all I knew at the time. It was like I did the sinner's prayer kind of thing. Like I realized I read a book by a guy named R.C. Sproul, you know, ironically enough. And I read it and I was like, man, I, I need to get my life right. You know, and I just did what I, the only thing I knew to do, which was to get on my knees and kind of ask God to forgive me for my sins and to save me or whatever. But whenever I was out, so I don't know if that has anything at all to do with anything other than the fact that whenever I was either flatlined and actually gone for, I think, like a minute, or again, if it was just like the drugs or whatever, but I remember being like at least a little bit conscious. Like I wasn't completely unconscious because I remember thinking to myself, this isn't, you know, I remember thinking like, I don't want to go back if I'm being totally, totally honest. I remember thinking because there was almost like a voice and I don't know if it, no, you know, it could have been a doctor saying, you breathe, breathe, you have to breathe. But to me, it sounded just like a whisper or like a gentle kind of like, um, you, you need to breathe. And that was like the way I was hearing it. And I remember in my own, you know, sort of heart or head or whatever, as crazy as it sounds like arguing with that voice and saying like, I don't want to go back. I, you understand it's like I'd become just hopelessly addicted to, to heroin and cocaine and just hated the the person that I'd become. And there's this line from a movie I love called Master Commander with Russell Crowe, you know, and the one guy, you know, he grabs a cannonball and he jumps off the side of the of the ship and he dies. By the way, this is, that's a tragically underrated movie. Wonderful movie. Aubrey, you know, Captain Aubrey has this great line and whenever he's doing the funeral, he says, you know, the simple truth of it is, is that not all of us have become the kind of men that we'd hoped we, we would be. That's how I felt, you know. You wanted to die. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just remember thinking that like, 
I don't want to go back to all that because, and the reason why though is because I felt totally at peace. Mm. I mean, just totally at peace, like a a peace that I've never and I've done it all. I've done all the the drugs or whatever that would bring you peace and you know felt the euphoria or whatever. But it was a different, it was a different order. So again, I don't know. I don't know if that was like, oh, I was in you know with God or something like that. I I, I couldn't see anything. I know that. You know, I came back. Unfortunately, I think it was a couple of days later, I was out getting high again. <laughs> so is there a, was there a lesson in it? That's a, that's a hard question. I think that there was. I'm not, I don't know if, I think that God was definitely trying to show me some stuff, you know, for certain. I think that he's always trying to show us things. The question is, is do we have ears to hear or eyes to see? I think that he's always been trying to show me how precious life is. And that's, you know, what we're talking about today, you know, as part of, you know, St. Paul's theology of the resurrection. It's almost like as Christians, we can kind of take it, you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think most people kind of take it almost for granted, like the idea of an afterlife or like the, and of course, before Christ came, there were all these different conceptions of the afterlife too. Um, we would imagine that like maybe death isn't like as problematic as it really is. And sort of the post-Easter, we kind of have it in our heads like, well, you know, death, maybe not as big of a, of a deal. But to me, though, apart from like the resurrection of Christ, if you really think hard about it, it's like death is it. It is like the it really does have the final word. It really is the king, right? Like it really is the most true fact of existence, in my opinion, if, if that's all there is, right, is that death is the ultimate reality apart from its dethronement. I think that that's really important for, for our discussion today because I guess I was getting into the, some of those stories and things in the context of you know our last podcast with history and story and stuff like that. And unfortunately, stuff can sound academic that we talk about, but sin can kill you, man. And even if it doesn't like physically take your life, like with heroin or whatever, it severs, it severs us from our relationship, for lack of a better word, our participation would be a better way to put it in the life of God, in the life itself. Yeah. We're beginning by talking You're You kind of came to a culminating point where you nearly died. But would you say that death had a grip on you prior to actual death experience? No, there's no question about it. There's no de- There's no question about it. I mean, I remember very clearly the moment that it hit me that I was actually, I mean, this, again, this is unfortunate, but I was in a, I was in a gentleman's club. We'll put it like that. You know, <laughs> there's other names for it, but we'll call it a gentleman's they club. They wear bow ties and, and uh, tuxedos. No, they don't wear much of anything. Well, not the, not the <laughs> gentleman's They don't wear much of anything at the gentleman's club. I'm done and so there's a you know there's a beautiful girl sitting on one side of me and, and not because i'm anything special but just because i'm spending money and i have drugs you know or whatever well there's two pretty girls and i remember i had like this really good like high grade like marijuana i had like this crazy to talk like this but like this pink cocaine like this really expensive like i had you know i think i had some ecstasy i had like all this stuff and i remember thinking and like in these girls like we were gonna go hang out and party or whatever you know whenever they were done and i remember in that moment sitting there thinking i wish i was dead I wish I was dead. I was so um, unhappy, you know, and I just thought because it's maybe an oversimplification of it, but I think that like sin really does, man, mm. make us sad. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it'll make you eventually want to kill yourself or, you know, the shame and the guilt and the, just the cycle of failure and of addiction and of self-hatred and self-loathing and stuff like that. And that, and the crazy thing though, the perverse part of it too, is that 
it's the sort of interplay with death that makes the whole thing the most exciting, right? Like the most exciting time, it's it's actually the, the, the time right before you inject the heroin. It's the culmination of like the, the ritual and the desire or whatever. It's like, in other words, what I'm getting at is whenever the desire is at, is at its highest. It's not necessarily when it's when it's satisfied, but the real high is whenever the desire is at like its its peak point. I don't know if I'm making sense here, but and it's almost like, will I live through this thing or not? Is the pleasure. And so, man, that's really like a perverse thing. <laughs> um, and I think that I'm probably just giving voice to I'm sure how millions of different addicts or, or people feel, right? With when that is that the death, the threat of death is itself part of the satisfaction. And, and it's not even the threat of death. Here's the other perverse part of it. It, it is the threat of death, but it's the release. It wouldn't be so bad, like from a, from from that perspective. If it's over, then it's finally over. It's like it's it's a release. I mean, when I wasn't just being like dramatic when I was sitting there thinking like, "Oh, I wish I was dead." I was like, really meant it. Mm-hmm. And so you understand how perverse, though, right? Like, especially in the conver- in the context of all the the conversations that what we're saying is that God is the life. You know, Jesus is the life. He's the mm-hmm. life. To not want to share in that is the height. You know, this is what you were talking about in your last po- podcast is like the height of deception. It's the height of an orientation to death and of sin. It's like you've made, you know, like in Isaiah 28, a covenant with death. You've sort of made a bargain with the fact that what's really going to be better is if you're not alive. That's profoundly antichrist or whatever, right? Like, because what we've been saying in all these different podcasts is, is that, well, God is life itself. He is being itself. He is existence itself. He is the good. He is the true and the, and the beautiful. And maybe just for me particularly, I, I kind of maybe appreciate some of that stuff. I understand something of like the ugliness of life. Mm-hmm. And I understand something of like the despair and really just the hatred of life. It's a terrible sin to not want to share in just the very basic of life. I think that often as Christians, there's a kind of tendency toward abstraction, and especially on this subject. When we talk about sin, even talking about an orientation to death, I think that we're in some way we may be missing it, because I think really what we're describing is a kind of immediate existential experience of this thing that you're describing that in some way this has a grip on us and it just pervades our very experience of life or the absence of life or you know whatever that is and i think that that's what when we're talking about romans 7 i think that paul is describing a really bad trip on the law that in some way there's this alienation and we might do it in any number of ways but it is this in other words we we need to be able to say in a kind of immediate sense what this thing looks like that has a grip on us and i think sometimes we fail to do that in other words we we kind of take a step back and we describe what we're doing or we describe that we're engaged in a particular activity but i don't think that's it yet in other words it's not oh i'm shooting drugs or i'm engaging in this particular high risk activity which is ultimately destructive it is this the the kind of incapacity for life or a kind of alienation 
that is the driving force that is primary that is driving us and i think when we say talk about death in other words the new testament is not simply talking about end of life or even you know my experiences weren't really pertinent i don't think but i think yours are because what i was describing is oh well mortality but i think what we're describing is in fact life experience or the feeling of how death can pervade our life. And so psychoanalytically, you know, this is, I think, what we're always dealing with, this disjuncture Mm. between, within ourselves, you know, between the law of the mind or the law of the body, that that gets at the the reality of of death. Yeah, um, and I want to bring John in because I want to hear if anything crazy has happened to him too but i was thinking about this earlier just in terms of like even you know drunkenness Hart writes the book god and the subtitle is being consciousness and bliss right so in some way he wants to sort of talk about god as being itself and really just the whole notion of our of being conscious is actually like a very mysterious thing right um and that we're sort of participating in being and therefore in some way in the life of god and even with um something as like um, you know you think it's benign or whatever as drunkenness or whatever but it's like the real sin in it though is that you're separating yourself in some way from your consciousness of god right it's like you're impairing your union with God. That's what we've been talking about throughout all these different podcasts. It's sort of like, okay, well, what is Christianity about? What's the point? Ultimately, you know, we're going to say that the point is theosis or divinization or union with God. And that um, I think that this is just what happens with an orientation to death or sin or whatever is that ultimately it's something that you, that's sort of inserted between, at least in the case of getting high or, or drinking too much or whatever. It's like you're, 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 you really are altering, you know, your sort of ability to have union with God, right? And what I mean by that is life, right? It's like you're, you're cutting yourself off from like the source of goodness and being and whatever. You're sort of closing in on yourself. You're not even really able to be there for your neighbor. You're not really able to be in proper relation to yourself, or to God. And so then that's just the nature of all sin, but really that's like the nature of death, yeah. right? Yeah. And that is, I think, when Paul is using the language in the New Testament, he uses several words. You know, he talks about the flesh. But of course, the flesh itself is not simply a reference to being bodies, but because he does use the, the terms for soma. But flesh is a kind of principle that has a grip on us. And I think that's what you're, you're describing. You can describe it in, in any number of ways as a kind of desire or impetus or this thing that a drive, a grab, you know, it's almost, uh, it's hard to describe it. Kierkegaard may be one of the key people here in, in attempting to describe this kind of absence. There's an absence that we would fill. There's a grab for life or being that in, in, in some way missing. In other words, it is just this profound, basic existential experience that is primary then to, to, to what I think the biblical picture of flesh, of a kind of living death, of sin. And then once you say it in this way, then we can begin to describe why would resurrection life refer back? In other words, how is that salvific? 
I think by not talking in the way that we're talking, we, we may in fact miss the nature mm-hmm. of salvation, that we begin to live a resurrection life rather than a live an orientation to death. And John, like John, we usually do this to Paul, but you've just been patiently, you know, just waiting in the background for like however long now, uh, while Paul and I have just been (laughs) talking on and on. I do want to ask you, you know, I remember for some reason made me think of a time when I was probably 12 or 13 and I was walking down like this, the road and this guy, you know, stopped me. He was doing street evangelism, you know, and he was like, Hey man, he was like, are you saved? I, I asked him straight up. I was like, saved from what? You know, it's like a question that we're asking today, right? It's like the same thing that we're asking today. I asked him and he was like, well, you know, and he he did the whole thing of like, well, you know, you know, you sinned and you're going to go to hell and, you know, you need to be saved from all that. And I remember as he was talking, you know, I was going through a particularly difficult time even at that age. And I remember thinking like, you know, I guess I'm really not all that worried about what you're talking about, but there's, there sure are some things in my life right now that I wish God would save me from. And so, John, like, I, I want to get to you on this because what place should death hold then after all is, you know, all, everything that we've been saying, mm-hmm. um, what place should death have in our, our sort of picture mm-hmm. of salvation? Well, I, you know, oddly enough, and this is sort of anticlimactic after all those those great stories, you know, death can't be primary, actually, if we're talking about what is God doing in the world? Well, um, if death in some way isn't necessary to God's picture, which is to say if sin isn't necessary to God's uh, plan for creation, then death can't necessarily be primary. But death is a problem for us, which is maybe what we've been describing, right? Death isn't God's problem, such that uh, whenever... Je- or a way of saying this would be Jesus didn't die because God needed him to. Uh, Jesus died because we needed God to die with us and to recapitulate that part of our existence into the life of God so that we would have eternal and abundant life. So I think that's, you know, a subtle shift there, but I would say, well, death can't be primary. Rather, life is primary. What God is doing in the world is really about us coming to have friendship with God. But death is such a huge problem for us, both um, the reality of like physical death and what that makes us do, but also the way death grips us even in our in our lives as well. Which may pertain to the passage in Romans that gets mistranslated. In other words, I think we're having a conversation about Romans. Therefore, just as sin entered into the cosmos through one man and death through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. Now, you may recognize that is not the usual translation of that verse. Usually we get it backwards, that Augustine was reading this in the Latin Vulgate, and it reads that sin pervaded and death then followed sin. I think that the reading I gave from Hart's translation is the correct rendering, and even you know, in that particular verse, I think we need to expand that. That is that what we're describing as the primary predicament of sin is to imagine that death in some way has primacy. It is the main thing. And this then constitutes our orientation. That is, in some way, the grab for life in the midst of death, the, to imagine that, it, that life is a kind of zero-sum gain 
and that you just have to grab all the gusto that you have. That is the impetus to sin. The death posited as ultimate reality is definitive of sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then the way I would want to think about it and just and especially in light of everything that we talked about and it's and it is a good question that you asked you know well was there a lesson there and did I actually learn anything and and uh the more I think about it I do and I think that God is still using a lot of that stuff to help me even understand now how I would answer the question of what place should death have you know or holding our picture of salvation and that would be then for me just anything that would separate you know that if God is life itself and I believe that he is you know that Jesus is the life anything then that would impair or interrupt my union with God, then is death is a form of death to me. And it needs to, I need to be saved from it. And maybe the term God here needs to be conjoined with our previous conversations, life, love, joy, beauty. What we're describing when we say God is reality and our access to reality that is available to us then once we understand that this, these things are accessible to us mm-hmm. in and through the person and work of Christ. That is, what is it we need saved from? We need saved from this orientation that is death-dealing in, it, in, in all of its aspects experientially, but in reality it leads to the destruction of human life and the entry into life is an alternative experiential reality. And John, I think you would agree too that we also need to be saved from the culmination of whatever that orientation is, our actual demise. Really, you know, we're supposed to be talking about Douglas Campbell, and I think that we are. He he speaks about how death is the divine no in Karl Barth's idiom of election. Can you help us, can you help bring Douglas Campbell into this conversation and maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so, I mean, this is... Campbell bringing Bart to light in some sense that uh, death in one way is a divine no against sin that Campbell asserts that death is you know a way of limiting sin in one sense and you get that you sort of get that theologically conveyed in the early chapters of Genesis like whatever you would do with the you know the flood that seems to be what's being conveyed theologically right that death is an end to sin and then there's the bit that says god's not going to contend with this anymore so the years of humankind will only be 120. you know there's like a limiting of um, the type of life that was being led Uh, which i don't know what we would do with all that that's that's fascinating but this idea that death is the divine no and in this sense that when jesus dies and this is bart's point right that we can't talk about election in any sense that's not Christological. If Jesus is central to our understanding of what salvation is. So that Jesus takes on death or Jesus willingly dies. He lays down his life. And this is God's no to sin, uh, to death in a sense, because you know what comes from this is resurrection. It's a condemnation of a certain type of life, uh, which is what we've already been describing, this orientation. But it's a condemnation of this reality of uh, that there could be anything that might separate us from God. Uh, not even, I don't think necessarily we have to think of death in that sense, uh, physical death in that sense, but uh, that's definitely what's being 
issued the strong no to. And then on the flip side, of course, we have God's yes to humanity being also offered in and through Christ as resurrection, as true union with God, eternal life, um, you know, and then how that relates to uh, who Jesus was with other people as well. I mean, and that's that's so good, man. It, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, life is so precious and we can almost take it for granted. You know, I'm, I, I have a dog that's a rescue dog and she sleeps you know 23 hours a day she's a little shih tzu mm-hmm. and um i call her mrs bobo her real name is emmy lou but she has just been you know losing all of her vision rapidly you know losing her vision losing her hearing she can't smell anything and she's just going downhill fast and even just for a dog they have only had this dog for a couple of years but there's just something so awful about mm-hmm. that I have, I'm, just, I'm using I'm, I'm sort of starting from the bottom and, and working my way up but and i have a cat you know that i just and i that i love I, cats are higher than dogs well that, that's actually yeah <laughs> that's a really interesting uh i'm sorry interjection there um maybe that's another <laughs> podcast that we can do but this <laughs> I have this cat that I love, you know, her name's Mrs. Kitty. And she's also, she just showed up to my doorstep one day. And I just, she's like the greatest cat ever. I mean, she like, I call her and she comes and she's always, you know, she's just the best. I'm not, I wasn't even a cat person. And then I was thinking, you know, I was talking to my wife, uh, Margaret earlier, and just thinking about, you know, how much I love her and how much I appreciate her and things. And just thinking about how, you know, just the stories that we were talking about earlier, it's like, man, I should be dead, you know? Um, and, mm-hmm. and it's like, I'm thinking about how precious her life is thinking about my friendship with you guys, you know, and, and I'm not trying to get sappy or whatever. I'm just saying like what we're talking about, it's almost like you could take it for granted, but, uh, existence being life itself, it's just so precious and it's so fleeting. And without the resurrection, of course, it's that's, it's over. Right. And then, Paul, I know that you've always been, mm-hmm. I, I know that you like Bart on election there too. So I want to make sure that I keep bringing you back in. Do um, you have anything to add to either what uh, John or I was just saying? It's interesting how Campbell is using this because, in fact, he is reading Romans. And I'd like to ask him this when we have him on the podcast because I'm sure that he's well aware of the alternative reading as <laughs> thorough as he's thoroughly yeah. as he's familiar with Romans. And, of course, he's giving us the Augustinian reading not of original sin, but of uh, the reading that sin precedes death. Romans chapter 5, yeah. Yeah, in, mm-hmm. in 5. And so that just seems not to be true, because people die that we would not hold accountable or imagine would be accountable to sin. But the reality is that death has spread to all. And in some way, this is the condition in which Christ meets us and God comes to us. There is a judgment. There is the picture. And again, this will get back. This is Campbell's reading. He has an alternative reading, but in chapter one, but the idea of the wrath of God revealed from heaven now. How is that? How is there? Well, I think in the judgment of death, there is this uh, delimitation, you know, of human sinfulness. I think the, the, the generation of Noah is interesting. It does seem that the prolonged life of people simply could add to their iniquity. That is, that they became removed from the, the reality of their own mortality. And the more that was the case, the greater that sin increased. 
however you want to read that. That that could describe any human life, but it could also describe an epic in human history. In some way, what is taking place, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, is that the no is one that we engage in our own baptism. You know, this is the significance of Romans 6, that we die and we acknowledge this thing. But it's not just that it's not just death or any death, but it's the death of Christ then that we participate in and that we're raised again. In other words, that this thing is enacted. The mortality per se, you know, I was thinking that the difference between my stories and your stories, mine were kind of little simple-minded tales, but yours, in fact, were more descriptive of the way that you needed to be reoriented, and may, and of course we all do. And so I think there's that sense that, that there's a passage into the death of Christ that undoes this orientation and gives us an orientation to life that in no way removes the reality of death or the reality that it has had a grip on us, but in some way that in Christ this this thing is undone. Yeah, and, and by the way, guys, I was just thinking that, you know, in my hierarchy that I was giving there, I, I realized I made several mistakes because I went, in my ladder of ascent, I went, God, cat, Margaret, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Boy, that's confused. Yeah, there's there's definitely some problems with my life. We're about to talk sense. about that, I think. But yeah, no, that's the yeah. So that, before we do, Paul, this is where you're you've already been talking about it, and this is the the, the stuff that we you know where we you know we really shine. Uh, and it's the work, you know, your book, The Psychotheology of Sin and Death, and um, which we recommend everyone listening to go out and buy right now. Um, how keep talking to us about how sin and death then are connected. Well, I, th- I think that, that, that however we connect them, you know, that whether it's sin preceding death or death preceding sin, they're certainly interwoven. And I think that it's in Romans 7 that Paul is describing the way in which they're interwoven. But of course, Paul is referencing Genesis 3, but he's creating a situation in which Genesis 3 sort of refers to, it's a kind of universal experience, that the I there, is that Paul? Yeah. Is it Adam? Yeah. Is it every I? I think it is. And so the the link between sin and death in the Genesis story, which it seems Paul's retelling that, has to do with covetousness or desire. That is that there that desire in some way becomes definitive and displaces life. That one the absence of life, you know, think of the passage from the tree of life to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or just think of the human experience. And this is where we get into psychoanalysis, so that what we're describing is a, is a psychoanalytic experience, that the desire for life is a very different thing, uh, and the grab for life is a very different thing than dwelling in life, having life. And so sin is the orientation that actually gives rise to, it's the orientation in death 
that is death dealing in its in the experience it's it's you know the, i think this is the notion that's there in a failed reading in judaism that jews would imagine life is in the law there's nothing wrong with the law but to imagine the law is an end in itself that perverts the law that is the misorientation that Paul is describing in Romans 7. I think he's describing that throughout Romans. And of course, what he's saying is this isn't just a Jewish problem. This is the human problem, that in some way we have all become subject to the law of sin and death, that the two are interwoven, that this orientation to the law or to the symbolic order, you know, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, uh, to authority figures, to the father figure. You can put, in other words, you can put all kinds of things there in place of the law. But in some, maybe just culture, you know, that in some way we would obtain ourselves or have ourselves or have being, we would imagine that we can extract it then through being transgressive of the law, that in some way their life is behind the law, or in and through the law, law-keeping. Or, you know, just, just spread that out. You need to spread that out as thin as, you know, maybe just being a good American, doing your duty in a Kantian turn, uh, being a good Navajo, you know. That is that there are an infinite variety of, of ways that life can become death-dealing, and all of them are a singular thing that Paul is describing. It is this orientation to the law. It is death-dealing in that it imagines, it misses the point that life is in God. Life is not in the law. We don't have access to, to life apart from who God is. And so the two things then, psychoanalytically, that is uh, our immediate experience that the law is, you know, the law of the mind, and then there's the law of the flesh, and these two things are uh, over and against one another. That's good. I mean, that's terrible. <laughs> that's awful. Uh, yeah. uh, John, you have anything to add to that? Not to take away or to even say that this is totally alternative, but um, I think. So Paul, in presenting the psychoanalytic picture, may only be presenting one piece of uh, something that we could talk about in a little bit larger terms. And the first thing, I was actually just looking up on my bulletin board, and I've got a quote from David Bentley Hart, and it says, However the gnomic faculty may wander, the natural will animating it seeks only one ultimate end. And where I wouldn't want to be left short is not being able to talk about how actually when we desire something that there's always this natural desire for um, a supernatural end which is god and that this really is does constitute what a human being is so what's going on here well uh bernard lonergan has a way of thinking about sin in terms of bias is the word that he chooses to use and i'll break that down into four categories here in a second but first just to say ultimately what we might link bias to is concupiscence or disordered love. And that's one way of just saying what's happening when sin and death get linked is when we fail to love God as our ultimate end, the, the reason for why we exist and who we uh, need to participate in and where we're going 
our God is our ultimate friend, right? In this sense, um, that we would seek union with God. When we fail to do that, and we love these other things, this may be characterized as a way of death, even though that's not, um, it's hard to distinguish right there at first, because we're just talking about disordered love. So it's not as if uh, we are completely loveless. But in a way, disordered loves is a way of being loveless. And so these four categories are bias. One includes, I'm going to work backwards because I want to start where Paul was talking. So he talks about dramatic bias. And this would be what psychoanalysis is getting at or what Paul is talking about uh, just a moment ago. How a part of this picture is a disordered self, even in the sense that when we try to apprehend who we are, we misapprehend and we mislove ourselves such that we would make an illicit grab for life as if we could have life in itself over and against just desiring God. But there's also individual, group, and general bias. And the way this works is if we think about individual bias, this would be that type of uh, the way we as individuals relate to both the world and to other people. And an individual bias would be to say that we begin to we begin to think in terms of what we need or we comprehend or our consciousness functions along terms of what we need. And we, see, we privilege that above our fellow human beings. And so this causes us to have disordered relationships with other people. And it's also a failure to love other people as creations of God made in the image and likeness of God. Group bias is the way this functions, as you guessed it, in groups. So this is what Paul also alluded to a second ago. It's like a nationalism or an ethnocentrism or a xenophobia that says the good of my group outweighs the good of any other person. And what that does then, of course, is the same thing on a larger scale of disordering our loves, uh, because there is a legitimate love, right, for those who are closest to us or those whom we build communities with geographically. And yet in no way should the love for those people or the love for that society be to the detriment of the stranger or the foreigner, the sojourner, to use a biblical word. Then there's general bias, which is to think in terms of general categories, which is to say that we tend to privilege common sense understandings. Uh, the good, how can we accomplish the good for ourselves as we understand what that good would be on the order that we live our lives, which we've already said is very disordered and could even be characterized as misloving creation and misloving ourselves, misloving our fellow human beings. So the answers that we would come up with um, are always going to fall short in some way, right? This would be to privilege some sort of common sense understanding, which I think back to your story, right, Matt? Uh, this guy walks into your house and he says he's going to burn the place down. Common sense says you've got to shoot him. As it turned out, you didn't have to shoot him, thanks be to God, that you, uh, and I'm not sure about him, but at least you're alive and you didn't have to yes. commit that violent act against a fellow human being regardless of how sad or sorry that fellow human being's life had become. Rowan Williams, I think, articulates this really well in his little book on resurrection. He alludes to, you know, a young terrorist or mass murderer or something like that. This man had went out and killed a number of people. And when we think about that event, we definitely see the victims as those who were killed by this young man. But then he hangs himself in his cell. And Williams uh, admonishes us not to look past the fact that this hanging individual, criminal though he be, links us directly to Jesus Christ who hung on a tree. 
that we can also see the face of Christ in this individual, because in some way we as a community or, um, you know, this predicament that we're in, the way that we would relate to each other because of these different levels of bias have left this person in circumstances where one, they would do violence to others and two, they would end up hanging themselves in a way, you know, obfuscating or obscuring, um, the image of Christ in us, we, we tend to do that both to others and to ourselves. And so this way of bias is a way of talking about how that works out on the order of a disordered love. And it's a pretty big picture of doing that. How does that relate to death, I think, is the question. And once you think about a life that is already biased towards what's good for me, what's good for those who look most like me, um, and then a way of life that means I'm going to relate to everybody and the world in a way that's most expedient for uh, what I take to be my own finite good. I'm already such a disordered person. What could be the end of this or what other way of talking about this sort of decline um, than death? Like this is a failure, a fundamental failure to be human and to participate in life, which is ultimately rightly ordered love, being in love with God, who is life and truth and love. Good, it's been, good it's been a great talk. That's good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.